to the Youth Voices of the Six, a podcast made by youth, for youth, and everyone in between. Powered by Toronto Team L and M of Pivot Canada. This podcast is sponsored by Pivot 2020, a Canada-wide youth employment research project jointly led by Youthful Cities and SFU Centre for Dialogue. The aim of this project is to provide youth with employment, help youth gain experience in research, and explore other creative outlets that can help inform how youth in Canadian cities recover post-COVID-19. Before we begin this podcast, we would like to acknowledge that our work takes place on uncreated land and traditional territories and starts to honor the land on which we work, study, and gather. The land that I'm standing on today as a team member of Toronto, also known as Takarano, is located on the treaty lands and territories of the Mississauga of the Credit and traditional territories of the Ashinaburg and Chippewa Ahandanosane and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis people. The territory is within the lands protected by the Dish Within One Spoon Wampum Belt Convent, an agreement between the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe and allied nations to peacefully share and care for the resources around the Great Lakes. As a disclaimer, this podcast may include swear words as well as recounts of racist attacks and experiences by the hosts and guests in this podcast. We feel the topics discussed in this podcast are necessary for us to explore and explain on the topic of racism in Toronto. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, my name is Yulan Hu, and I am the host of this day's podcast on racism. I have two guests with me, Mitch, as well as Gloria F., and I'll have them introduce themselves. So uh, let's start off with Gloria. Hi, everyone. So my name is Gloria. Um, I am... I live in Toronto. I grew up here. I came here when I was one years old. I've lived here ever since. Yeah, like I'm excited to just um, talk about my experience as a Black woman in this city, growing up in this city. Um, So next will be Mitch. Hi, so I'm Mitch. I was born abroad, but I've lived in Toronto for about five years now. Um, So I just recently finished my BA at the University of Toronto. I was majoring in Asian Studies and Sociology. And right now I am just applying for grad school and taking online courses in multiple fields. I thank both of you for your introductions. So I'll introduce myself too. Um, My name is Yulan Hu and I was born um, outside. So I immigrated to Toronto when I was about four. And from then I lived probably my whole life in Toronto. Um, I went to the University of Toronto and have a Bachelor's of Arts in um, City Planning. And today I will be the host to introduce us to this conversation. You guys could also, if you feel like it, to um, ask questions for me as well as the other person. Um, so let's just start off with um, the starter question of like this topic of this podcast. So have you ever experienced racism in Toronto? Yeah. I've definitely experienced like racism or just weird, you know, people just feel like weird vibes from people, you know, maybe staring, maybe I walk into a store and they're like walk following me and my friend around, you know, we're not, we don't look suspicious. Well, I don't think I look suspicious, but to them, I look suspicious, most likely because I am black. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, just, just a lot of like judgment and. Yeah. um, I can add to that sort of it's kind of weird because there's like both explicit and implicit forms of racism um at least from my experience here in terms of explicit um experiences at least in toronto i haven't like experienced anything like 
really in my face, like knock on wood so far. Um, but like, I do have an antidote from like a time I was in Vancouver. There was a time where I forgot my wallet. I was on like public transit and I was like stopped by RCMP officers. And at that time, it was probably one of the most like intimidating experiences of my life. I was basically frisked by the RCMP officers and you know, they set the whole spiel of anything you can you say can and will be used against you in legal proceedings. And then they went on to even call me like an illegal immigrant and threatened to deport me if like, you know, under the accusation that I was lying. And this this wasn't in Toronto City, but from what I've heard from other friends and from like just people publicly speaking out against officers here. Like this is something that happens like in virtually every Canadian city. So yeah, I'm not sure if like Gloria, you've had something as like explicit as that. I've never had anything explicit in my face thus far. And yes, like Mitch said, knock on wood, nothing that I can like really remember that's like traumatizing, but I've definitely had those little implicit, you know, a lot of implicit um, encounters, but not so much explicit and thankfully because that's scary and like going back to what Mitch said about her experience it's crazy because I really wonder if you had been a white girl if they would have said you know that whole illegal immigrant stuff you know what I mean or um if they would have deported you you see like that's like problematic right like that isn't something that should be said to anybody and people are so comfortable to say these things like absolutely there was just there was this entire body language they were giving off at the time of that incident where like you could tell they were kind of picking on me and sort of talking down to me in a way that was sort of assuming because i was a visible minority because i was this you know relatively like weak looking asian girl compared to these like burly white rcmp officers like they had almost an implicit you know, um, almost like a taken for grantedness to just pick on me, essentially. And that that's to do with racial stereotypes, because especially, um, at least for East Asian women, there's this horrible stereotype of us being like docile and very like, um, just meek, essentially. And that definitely came off in that sort of encounter. And that's why it was very tra- like traumatizing, because I don't see myself that way. And I see myself as someone with a bit more agency. And the fact that I was like cooperating, I wasn't making a fuss, I wasn't trying to like provoke any kind of confrontation. Um, And they were still giving me such like a sort of, well, racist attitude and just like a demeaning attitude towards me. It, It was definitely kind of a shocker for me. That was when I really woke up to the fact that it doesn't really matter who you are, as long as you're not white, essentially, you're always at risk of just um being subordinated by just like especially police officers but like white people in general and i realize i'm going on a tangent here but there's even like times where you know this is a form of an explicit racism that i've mentioned with like the rcmp officers but even like in toronto when i was working here in different like office jobs on campus um i won't say which but um i had like a manager once that was like really um essentially being sort of microaggressive and sort of just implicitly racist towards me where there was one time he was nonchalantly um speaking to me saying oh michelle you're like asian like you must like anime and stuff right why don't you like talk about stuff like that and it's, it's just like the most demeaning stereotype to just like look at someone just take in like 
their skin tone or just their like phenotypical features and just assume their whole personality. And that's kind of what drives me nuts about, you know, um, having to constantly deal with that um, in a place like Canada and many other places in the world, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, you know, this isn't, I don't know if this is necessarily like racism or kind of like, it, I can go off of what Mitch has just said about like the people just looking at her and assuming because she is Asian, she likes certain things. But I know that sometimes, for example, people like look at me and assume that I'm Jamaican or like Caribbean and not even ask, right? Or be like, oh, do you like jerk chicken? Or do you know how to make, excuse me, black. And I used to be, I used to tell people like black people are so diverse. We come from so many different places. You can't go up to someone and ask these questions. If you want to get to know somebody, that's what you do. You go up to them and say, Hey, whatever. And then you, you can ask them, what's your background? You know what I mean? Where are you from? Blah, blah, blah. Questions like that are usually okay. But to like come to someone's face and actually like literally just say like things that are just, it's just so like, I don't know, just very small minded. You know what I mean? It's like not everybody comes from that same place. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. So I also, I forgot, I actually did have an experience with racism, but I think I just kind of brushed it off because I was like, people are just, you know what I mean? So I didn't let it get to me, but it was an experience where me and my other friend, who's also black, we are walking down a street in Toronto. We are going to a grocery store and some, I think he, I, yeah, he was a white man walked uh, beside us and said something about the N word something, the N-word, something, something, okay? And I'm just like, great, like, yip de doo And like, what do you get from, like, I don't understand, you know what I mean? I think that this person probably wasn't well, like mentally well, I'm assuming, because that's not something that anyone would really, anyone that's mentally well would really just say to someone. But um, yeah, so, and then I remember some other guy behind us getting really upset about it. And like me and my friend just kept walking because we're just like, we're not this person. We don't know. We don't want to get into any altercations with people on the street because we don't know what these people have. They could have weapons. You know what I mean? We're two girls, but we just don't. So we just walked away and he walked away and the guy was behind us really upset. Another guy was really upset. And I was like, it's fine. And I kind of just buried it in my memory. I didn't let it get to me because I but I was like, this is, this is definitely a thing that people think is okay to say to Black people, to demean us and make us seem small and little, but I'm not going to let someone do that to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. There was mm. like, I think there was like a case in a Quebec, not Quebec, actually, Ottawa University recently, where there was like a professor that did say the N-word, but like justified it on the pretext of, oh, but I'm like talking about it in an academic sense. And so that that problem is still systemic today. And it's kind of confounding to like realize just how prevalent racism is despite, you know, being in a place like Toronto or just Canada that is apparently meant to celebrate its diversity and multiculturalism. But when you still have like all these sort of like, like interactions with racism, like despite all the efforts of trying to like stomp it out, it just, it's really just disappointing and frustrating if you're not white and you're just constantly having to like fight against like this and that and trying to like go through the emotional labor of trying to just ignore it so you can get on with your life but it it's constantly like present throughout Canadian society yeah yeah it is it's a lot to it's 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 really sad because I feel like people like visible visible minorities there's so many things that you like, for example, if you want to travel, now you have to worry about I'm a black woman traveling to another country or just having so many things on your shoulder. Like, for example, I've been hearing a lot of 
black women are have the high, higher rates of dying during childbirth or pregnancy. Like stuff like this is like you have to take into account that there's so much institutionalized and systemic racism. You just don't know. Like you just because of what you look like, you could have a higher chance of dying. You know what I mean? Absolutely. There's just so there's a lot to be a person of color in this world is a lot. You you get thrown with a lot of things like in your face. And the older you get, the more it becomes more pre- prevalent. And I guess depending on like the person and your experiences and stuff, some people will experience it more than others, right? Like for me, I'm not, I wouldn't say that I'm someone that has gotten too, too many like um, explicit racist, racist. Um, I've had been had too many explicit racist encounters, but I know a lot of people who have, and I hear things all the time and I can't help but to sympathize with them because I, they look like me, right? so yeah. yeah yeah and it's like especially during covid like if it wasn't already prevalent for asians it just like exacerbated in the span of a few months because like there have been so many reports about like east asians being targeted for just even like just being spat on literally when you're a nurse like i think this happened in a toronto hospital not too long ago according to like the cbc or something and like even for me i just remembered as gloria was talking um there wasn't there was a thing that happened to me a few days ago that i also compartmentalized which was there was a guy walking up the street um he i think tried to just spit at me like i thought at first it was like a general he was just spitting at the floor but then i noticed he was like coming closer and closer and like hacking and coughing and i had to like swerve Luckily I had my mask on and, you know, I, I want to just like assume that the guy was mentally ill as well, but you know, it's, it's just scary, especially when there have been horrific um, instances um, against Asian, like visible Asian people here. And it's not helped by this whole rhetoric of, you know, the China virus that, you know, Donald Trump has been promoting throughout like his time as like president of the United States thus far. It's, it's just, it's, exacerbated this like sort of visibility of racism in the past few years I would say yeah yeah for sure and it's just so crazy like this is a random thought that I just had but you know when people are telling other people go back to your country or go back to where you came from it's like do you know that you you also are an technically an immigrant those same people that are saying that technically an immigrant like we are all (laughs) technically um living on stolen land and yeah. uh just as a side plug we do mention this in the immigration and refugee podcast so Beautiful. tune in for that if you're interested but yeah like there is it there's this you know sort of like white settler mentality of oh we were the ones that really like made this country a country but really that's complete bs sorry to say because um indigenous people have been here for thousands of years prior and what happened was basically just classic colonialism during like the 18th 19th and 20th century and even till today that's still a persisting issue that the canadian government and just the sort of like general public hasn't really acknowledged not to say that like immigrants and like bipoc don't have a role to play in like making this an issue that should be heard and represented transparently but for sure it's it's just so problematic that you know despite everything canada is meant to stand for there is so much just white eurocentricism i would say just to throw some jargony terms out there but just the the prevalent idea that it's like white people first and white people making the most contributions to a country where really 
it's, it's on stolen land for one, but it, it also requires immigrants to be able to like operate a country of the scale and complexity. And that's never fully acknowledged, especially with all this just racist rhetoric bouncing around right now. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So for um, sure. I just wanna go um, on what Gloria as well as Mitch said about like how there is this mentality that people of color aren't are like native to the land, right? So I had actually experience on basically during the pandemic where I was wearing a mask and I was walking down with my sister like off the street and this guy, um, this older white gentleman, he came up to us and he told us um, to our faces that because of you people, we are dying, like people are dying. So like, I, I, I love how he said you people, like as if the people part doesn't actually mean people. It's just people. And then like he goes and says people are dying as if like we're also not like people of like East Asians are also not dying. So going to the like the mentality that like, you know, the white settler mentality that they own the land is like um, something that, that I feel like a lot of um, people of color experience from like a lot of you know, I won't say all like white people, but like a, a portion of them where they feel like they own the land that they settled. And I just want to go off um, and ask this question when we're talking about like, like um, systematic racism, right? So like in your option, um, to what extent does systematic racism persist in this city, in Toronto? Um, it's crazy because I know, for example, I watch the news sometimes and then Doug Ford will say things like, I think he says things like uh, Canada isn't racist. Is that what he says? Like those things, oh like Canada God. isn't racist. Like we have a long history of racism. Africville, we have the indigenous people getting um, sent to residential school. Like there's a whole thing. And you're going to come and say that Canada isn't racism where the racist, racism is literally thrown in your face. It's in the media. It's in institutions. It's in schools. It's in textbooks. It's everywhere you go. Yeah, like this whole continent's history was founded on racism. Like, again, this is colonized land. Like, <laughs> North America would not be North America had a bunch of Europeans not set sail and conquered and pillaged the shit out of this land. Sorry for the cussing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. It's crazy. Yeah. I'm just I, like, you are a leader and you're going to come and say stuff like this. Like, instead of having remorse and feeling so, like, you know what I mean? Like, maybe, like, pity or, you know, just, just things. Sometimes some of these leaders say, I'm just like, it's so wild and they need to stop. And they're on the TV and they're saying, I'm like, oh. Yeah. Like, unfortunately, it seems like leaders like Doug Ford and I'm just going to throw Donald Trump in there. Like, populist yeah. um, leadership is becoming more, like, popular especially amongst like i'm gonna just be blank here and be like candid and honest white conservative voters tend to vote more for these people i think in almost a sort of backlash against sort of like affirmative action a sort of like against sort of like the like bipoc being more visible in like voicing their issues about racism about sexism about like equity issues it's it's sort of like a cultural like they, they call it a culture war recently but i feel as if it's just it's just a mess when you have 
people who are not educated about this country's history, about the current you know, plight of people who are already marginalized and already vulnerable to racism, sexism, you name it. Lots of ways to discriminate against minorities. And they're voting for people who have this sort of like strongman like figure to sort of like deny that any of these problems exist and sort of a tit for tat reaction about the fact that finally the minorities are like rising up quote unquote and they just don't want to deal with all these uncomfortable issues that have come with like you know yes the white settler mentality but all the racism and prejudice against people they've previously and still are oppressing and exploiting so really it's just it's astounding to me how much you know compartmentalization there is and just ignorance of people being bothered to acknowledge any of this like troubling history yeah and you know what's so wild too is that they'll say things like racism is gone i think they say stuff like this racism is not there it's dead and yeah completely undermining people's experiences with racism and just living in this country it's just it's a lot it's a lot yeah it's it's flat out denialism like they're completely they're people who don't even necessarily you know understandably don't get beyond maybe a public education and don't and they, even that system doesn't acknowledge you know the full extent of like colonial history or even like contemporary racism let alone like previous forms of racism like nowhere i think in the current canadian public education system do they talk about for example to do with chinese canadians anyway just because this is what i've studied um the head tax you know that's mm -hmm. a huge deal yeah um, that. for chinese canadians you know they were initially brought over as indentured laborers and called coolies initially but that whole history was also you know exacerbated with racism by both the, the canadian and united states governments because they literally imposed like a head tax to try to stop um can it, like chinese from immigrating into canada just chinese people these were like this is like a real exception here in terms of race and after that when the head tax didn't work they literally imposed something called an exclusion act which was a outright ban just targeting one race and it was done for i think over 50 years if i'm not wrong they only really managed to get compensation for all these like racially discriminating policies after the 60s, after World War II, when enough Chinese veterans had already fought in World War I and II to get enough representation. It's a whole controversial issue in Canadian history, but not many people in Canada through their education system know about anything like this. So it's quite astounding, you know, to see um, our political leadership that's not even reflective of that history. And I think it just, it really shows the poor quality of the type of leaders that you know the Canadian public is willing to elect and I think that signals a huge problem that really needs to be addressed yeah yeah I think a lot of it too yeah as we talked about it's denial and they just want to like bury it they just want to bury it they don't want to talk about it they want people to forget about it right that's what yeah it exactly it's sort of just sweep it under the carpet move on yeah. and that that's why there uh, I think that sorry, I just cut you off, Corey. No, it's okay. I said problematic. That's problematic, right? Yeah, exactly. It's problematic. And it's just, it's astounding how willing they are to do that. I think in terms of that, that sort of knee-jerk backlash reaction of denial, like sort of a defense, defensive attitude that 
predominantly, you know, I, I would say white Canadians, conservative white Canadians have against acknowledging this, you know, admittedly ugly, but very real part of Canadian history. And if you want to move on as a society that's progressive, that is inclusive, that really does respect the human rights of every single Canadian citizen and just humanity, you cannot keep using this sort of denialist attitude all the time of ignorance. If society is going to progress forward, the only way is to really just continue to educate yourselves, not try to sweep everything under the carpet. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it, it's, it's uncomfortable for them, right? It's uncomfortable for them to like acknowledge and to admit, and they don't want to be taken off of that kind of like pedestal, I guess, you know? Yeah, I the mean- The hierarchy. Exactly. Like systemic racism is also about addressing, like Gloria just said, that sort of hierarchy. And it, it is racial hierarchies work such that, you know, no matter where you are in the world generally, you know, if you're white, you're probably going to be way more advantaged than a lot of other people. Even if, let's say, like even where I was growing up for a long time in Brunei in Southeast Asia, if you were a white expat, sure, you didn't have necessarily the same power as like someone who was like an established local who was like part of a political or business elite family but you were in much better shape than a lot of other minorities who had like a whole history there even for generations like literally it's, it's sort of a it's sort of a derogatory joke i'm not sure if you want to include this in your podcast but it's like no matter where you are if you're white Go for it. Go. it's like you're, you're you're basically treated as like king or queen and even like there is this sort of a uh, joke that amongst at least my like BIPOC, especially Asian friends from back home will say like, oh, you're dating a white person. You're trying to marry up, aren't you? Because it's it's seen as if you're if you're dating a white person, it's like you're like ascending a sort of social like ladder because of that racial hierarchy implicitly there. And like it's, it's really sad because like it's it's an internalization of racist you know dynamics if you really buy into that hands down 100 percent. yeah so when you're talking about the internalized racism i just want to ask so like have you or have you you someone you know had like experiences of internalized racism so like i'll give an example um you know how for east asians the um, stereotype is that we're smart and, you know, we do very good in academic, academically. And this resulted in the the stereotype of like Asians have to be good at math. Oh. So like every time you, um, like, you know, I remember when I was young, um, all my classmates were saying, oh, you're so good at math. I wasn't good at math. But like they're saying, oh, you have to, like, they're kind of implying you kind of have to be good at math because you're Asian. And that's the sort of like internalized racism for me was that I thought to myself, I have to be good at math because I was Asian. I had to I had to do well in math because if I didn't do well, then like I wouldn't have lived up to that expectation. So my question to both of you is, have you guys ever experienced any of something like this or um, someone that you know that you saw that like experienced like some stereotyping, any of those internalized. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. Sorry. No, yeah. no, go, 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 Mitch. Yeah, I just wanted to speak directly to what Yunlam is describing. Like, 
Yeah, absolutely. So what Yulan described about the model minority, which is like when you sort of have people who have racial ideas or stereotypes and internalize those, um, it's sort of like negative stereotypes about how minorities should behave in the country or society they inhabit. And it's often described, like used to describe BIPOC minorities. But yeah, like the whole model minority thing, especially for, um, it, it applies to like immigrants in general, especially, but especially for um, East Asians lately, because we've had a lot of like discourse about this amongst our own circles, I think, and sort of self-awareness. Yeah, the whole, you know, idea of Asians being good at math or having like academically excelled, that's that's buying into a sort of stereotype based on sort of an immigrant specific history where, you know, you, you have family that often have to give up their livelihoods, their, their friends, their family, uh, money, and a lot of like just um, their whole, yeah, lives and uproot themselves and like try to immigrate into a completely foreign country. So when that happens, those people will tell their kids, you know, as parents, you better work hard because we literally gave everything up to make sure you could, you know, have a life here in a country that often is like idealistically meant to have better prospects than your country of origin. Um, but it, it's really problematic, you know, because buying into that whole myth you have to excel, you have to do great at math. That's pressurizing, first of all, for kids who have to go through that. Like I can definitely speak to that as someone who also grew up in that kind of household, um, even just abroad. It, it, it's damaging to the mental health of people who have to like constantly pressure themselves to work harder than everyone else, including white people who are the most like racially advantaged people when we're talking back to that whole hierarchy um, sort of, uh, framework. So, and it's, it's really sad when, um, in terms of just internalized racism, again, people of color buy into it and then use that to sort of, uh, like just create divisions amongst themselves. So just a quick anecdote here, but like, and you'll just have to take my word for it. I've heard some, you know, Canadian born Chinese people that I went to school with here, um, discriminate against other, um, just like, especially Chinese immigrants. And, you know, I, I don't know if you guys have heard it, but the terminology that, you know, or the slur that people use is fresh off the boats, which refers to recently landed immigrants who are often like, they may not speak English fluently, they may not have like the same networks or a sense of being established in the new country. And, you know, when any of my CBC Chinese Canadian born friends talk about fobs, they're often talking about like Chinese immigrants who don't like speak fluent English and they have like accents. And the association is like fobs are just rich kids who drive Porsche cars and don't care about integrating into Canadian society. Like not saying that there aren't people that perhaps fit that stereotype, but there's also, you know, a bunch of stereotypes that fall outside of that. You know, like they don't fall into that stereotype. They struggled to adapt to being in a foreign country and are from less luxurious backgrounds. And there's no acknowledgement of that. And, you know, the reason why I think FOB is really popular as a sort of slur that like CBCs often throw at FOBs or like just recent Chinese immigrants is because like 
it, it creates another hierarchy within a hierarchy, especially when you're not white and you're often feeling discriminated against. What you'll want to do is like marginalize other people who have like perceptively even less than you. But that gets exacerbated lately because you start to see like more recent immigrants who have more like money and social financial capital than previous generations. So then there's just this, just, just this whole tension of these different stereotypes just competing against each other in a really just horrific toxic way yeah i just i realized i went on a i went on a spiel there so yeah no that's okay um i think there's something you mentioned but it's gonna it ties in well into what i want to talk about like in terms of like internal internalized racism so when i think of usually when i think of like internalized racism i think of colorism and i you guys probably know what colorism is but um, there is, especially in like the black community, I think it's also in like certain brown communities, there's this people like are getting put against each other based on like skin tones, skin colors, you know what I mean? Like people see like darker skin, uh, dark skin versus light skin. I don't know if you guys have ever seen anything like this on social media. Yeah, cringe, makes it cringe. Um, yeah, like stuff like that. And it's, and it's so sad because a lot of this ties back to again like slavery and colonial like colonialization colonialize colonialization <laughs> slavery and just the ways in which or how um slave masters would have babies with the black um the black slaves and then the the kids or like the offsprings would be able to work in like the house like they would have better off than like the darker skinned um slaves right so I think a lot of it ties into it's just like a generational like trauma and it's going it's it's been following generations going generation after generation after generation and now in today's current society we have this whole thing where people are in even now they're skin bleaching they're skin bleaching because they want to be seen as prettier because being closer to white and we like you just look at the media and look at like models and so many there's just so many like stories about people and their experiences of eurocentrism right and like yeah. a lot of people yeah like a lot of people are yeah they're skin bleaching and because they think that being as dark as for example like myself is not deemed beautiful and that's not necessarily something that came from just africa like it's something that people in africa for example are doing but it's a long history of just this like mentality that being closer to white is better and light-skinned people just or light-skinned black people for example have it easier especially in like Hollywood like there's different portrayals of like a dark-skinned woman versus like a light-skinned woman it's just a it's just a whole thing and it's it's crazy and to be aware of something like this is very very important and empowering because you are going against you know what I mean like the norm like what's been what's been taught to us and a lot of these are subconscious it's not um a lot of people don't even really notice that they're really doing it, but it's always good to call them out on it. Yeah, that's so interesting, Gloria, because that just made me think of how it's funny because at least the way that I've talked about it with friends, especially like friends from East Asia, it's like there has always been this like there's so many whitening like skin products, especially on like like just cosmetic shops and like their you know the stuff that you can get it always has like some kind of whitening component to it um but the way that my east asian friends describe it, it's like there is a sort of like white centricism to beauty standards but it's also like apparently a historical thing because like it was a classist thing where it was 
um, the paler you were, the more sort of like rich or well off you were because it meant you could afford to like stay indoors and you didn't have to like go outdoors to like labor under the, like the farm, the sun and stuff like that in the farm. Mm -hmm. But like, there's also um, recently, I've heard this more in like South Korea. Um, there have been a lot of like plastic surgeries to like try and get double eyelids. In fact, I just remembered when I was in high school, someone asked me like, where I got my eyes done because I was so white. <laughs> and I actually had a classmate that thought I was white for some reason. And I was just, I was really kind of just taken aback because like all of this sort of beauty standard stuff just like hit me and it just really made me realize how, yeah, people value like sort of looking a little bit more European or white, basically. I don't know yeah. if it's the case as much now, but definitely it just it's kind of disturbing to think how pervasive it is yeah and for example sorry like there's even like an account where I think like for example black models right they usually look like more like Eurocentric like their facial features it's just like there's a lot like their facial features will look more um Eurocentric maybe their hair texture is more like loose you know what I mean? I think now things are a little bit, people are talking, people are, are um, speaking uh, out against injustice and racism and stuff more. So, you know, a lot of these agencies and uh, uh, companies are trying, to, they're trying to diversify their, you know, their, the people that they have, their models, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not as perv like prevalent, but it's still an issue that, for example, like something that I would see growing up, like the black models, not necessarily having like fuller lips like they just look different yeah totally it's kind of weird too because that also just made me think like in east asia when you see like a beauty magazine or adverts all the female models will have like gigantic google like googly doll eyes almost and just like um it's almost to the point of exaggeration and when i see um like vogue magazine or just like any staple fashion magazine or ad here in the west the asian models they choose tend to always have like narrow eye slits and like no double eyelid and just the complete opposite of like what the beauty standard in east asia is like so it's sort of like it's sort of like orientalism in a way because they're they're looking for a sort of in their own white centric way oh this is what an asian should look like narrow eyelids like um very like sharp like contour face and just like completely the opposite and it's it's sort of just astounding to me because at the same time I just realized too as you were talking Gloria like there's this whole sort of double standard of like being whitewashed as well mm -hmm. which people often apply and it's sort of like whenever I go back because I speak better English than I do like Chinese which is my local dialect like I should my mother tongue supposedly it's like on one hand I'm seen as like, oh, you're too white now. <laughs> like you're you're not like local as much anymore. But at the same time, it's like, it's still kind of valued in a different way because the more fluent you are in English and the more Western quote unquote, you can present yourself. Mm -hmm. It's seen as like a being a little bit more, I hate to use the term because it's so problematic, but like people describe it as like being civilized or something. And it's just, it, it is sort of an internalization of that racial hierarchy again, sort of like white as this like cultural civilization center. And I think it's only recently that people have started to like try and address that, but even in weird ways, it's like you still, 
you still see communities abroad that internalize it. I don't know if you have an experience to speak to that, Gloria, or like, yeah. Uh, not really. Nothing that pops up in my head right now, but it's definitely like what you said. It's, it's just, it's everywhere. <laughs> like it's literally just so in your face, but yeah, I don't know. You know. yeah it's it's just like I wanted to bring that up just because like it's always a double standard to have to like juggle between you know when you're in Canada and you're not white um even if you pass like in terms of like like as if you speak fluent English you understand generally the gist of the cultural values here it's like you pass as being Canadian but you're still not oh as white Canadian like in that sense because it's sort of like Canadianness is still, you know, white centric, and it's mm -hmm. sort of like as long as you're not white, you're always there's like so, some sort of periphery, an invisible boundary that you can't really cross. But then it's like for me when I go back to Asia um, to see my family and friends there, it's like it, there are times where it's just like I'm juggling between switching different identities at times. And there's like a term I think um, by W. E. Dubois, a famous uh, civil rights activist in the states, called double consciousness. And that term is about basically how you're always in conflict. You have to sort of subordinate how you see yourself for the sake of like behaving in a way that, you know, your host society recognizes like you should be behaving, if that makes sense. So like here, it's, it's sort of like, it's like going back to that employer I had that thought I liked anime because I'm Asian. In that sort of like environment, in that office setting, it was like, I had to try my best to like um, juggle between my emotions and sort of like I have to be outspoken, outgoing, but in a way that was like not too cutesy or not too like quote unquote like visibly like <laughs> Asian quote unquote. It was sort of weird. I, it's really hard to describe, but it's like I'm constantly having to think about how how is someone else, especially like a white employer perceiving me and how do I have to modulate my behavior so that they're not just going to take me for granted as some tokenist like Asian girl that they can just subordinate because yeah it's really hard to you know have to manage the fact that people will just take a look at you based on appearance and expect a certain personality and at the same time you don't want to be totally associated with like the negative stereotypes behind someone that looks like you and it's just it's so hard to have to just, you know, manage in this type of cultural setting in Canada. While as someone that looks like me in Asia, completely different set of like cultural norms and like sort of codes that you have to follow. So, you know, it's, it's just constant flipping back and forth depending on who I'm interacting with, where and when. And it's, it's a lot of just emotional labor based on just even racial appearance, yeah. Yeah. That is so true, especially with the, the, I can relate to like the whole em employer thing, like, you know, just wondering what they're going to think of you and you just not wanting to be like the stereotype or just in anything in general. Like I was actually, I was watching an interview of um, this girl, she was on a reality TV, she's black, and she was talking about how she didn't want to go on, to be on these shows and just be like stereotyped and just be, you know, just having experiences based on what other people think that she should act like but that's not what she does or that's not how she acts she's herself right it's right. just yeah it's you know, it's, it's had, a lot of pressure i had a friend um who was like visibly black and she said that sometimes there were times where she could tell 
there were like people like professors or other teachers who would think like oh she must be really like this racial stereotype is like loud and like outspoken and that kind of like sort of like attitude of a lot of spectacle and she really didn't like that because like she was telling me that's not actually how she feels about herself and she's much more introvert and I don't know if like that's a stereotype you're talking about but that's I think the one that I've heard the most yeah that is definitely like along the lines of it's like it's like black people or black women or people can't just be diverse and just like different things they just constantly put you and group you in like this box and they leave you there and you know, when you, when you act the way, when you act different from what, how they want to perceive you, it's this whole thing, like, oh my God, like, you're not, you're not like the, you're not like other Black people, you're so different, I'd like, you know, stuff, just say a whole bunch of things, like, very problematic, and a lot of people just need to be called out on these things as well, like, I'm, something that I'm also trying to work on is calling people out when they use just, just insensitive language, and just, things that just things that are just wrong especially like adults you know what I mean yeah they've been so stuck in their ways but it's like no like this is wrong you can't you have to be open-minded don't think that because someone is black they they they're I don't know just they just think that you're like ghetto and you're from the ghetto and you're just loud and you're rude and it's like no like there's different different people grow up differently you know what I mean so yeah, like there's a whole diversity of people with different interests and skill sets and like knowledge to share and just stereotyping everyone based on their appearance is not going to help in the same way that it's like, again, I don't want to be looked as as docile and unintelligent and cute just because I'm visibly East Asian, which I think a lot of like employers have in the past, like, like presumed of me, especially when there are times where I'm talking about like feminism or racism. And like, I'm saying those terms out loud and outright, I'm doing it in an assertive way. And then someone will look at me and go like in a sort of taken aback way. Oh, Michelle, I didn't think that you were that kind of person that was so like outspoken and political. And it's it's a stupid stereotype again of like the, you know, dumb, like dollish, cute, naive Asian girl. And, And it's just, it's frustrating so yeah I can see it's sort of like an opposite stereotype but I can see where you're coming from Gloria yeah yeah or like for example if let's just say if it was a black girl standing there talking and you know what I mean they wouldn't say oh I didn't think you were so outspoken like they probably wouldn't have said that Mm. because they're assuming that they're loud and they're this and they're strong that's the word the strong independent black that that problematic very extremely problematic word or sentence or describes description of a black woman but yeah right so it's sort of like the opposite stereotype in a certain way yeah it's pretty interesting but yeah yeah exactly these stereotypes are harmful because it just degenerates people into just caricatures of who they are rather than looking at a person as a human being for Mm -hmm. all their complexity and the fact that we all have different sides to us exactly so, so another question um, where we're at the topic of being a woman as well as a person of color, um, do you feel like that um, being both has resulted in like uh, more negative stereotypes given your way or like given to people who are both women as well as people of color? Because um, from a lot of what I'm hearing from the conversation is that based on your gender, as well as um, your, your, the color of your skin, 
um, you are treated a bit differently or like um, stereotypes are given to those two categories. Yeah, I remember, I guess this kind of relates, but I remember one time someone asked, this is so like cringe, someone asking me if I could twerk. And you already know why they're asking me this. Cringe, right? Cringe, 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 yep, cringe. And it's like, why? Because I'm black. I'm a black woman, so you think I can twerk? Like some, not all black girls can dance. This is just a whole, it's a thing, right? Not every, just because someone is of something doesn't mean they can do something. So yeah, again, a har another harmful, problematic um, issue. But yes, people are very diverse. Intersectionality is a thing. And people's experiences aren't the same. But definitely being, for example, like in society, you already know there's racism, there's sexism. So if you're a black woman or if you're an Asian woman or you know what I mean, it's there's those are two things that already hinder you and already um, like your experiences in this in this world will always be surrounded by those two things. You yeah, know what I mean, like how people see you. Totally, like absolutely. Intersectionality is the word here because you're impacted by a lot of not just like being Asian, but like the combination of being all these other things too, like a woman. Um, for me, it's it's kind of weird because if you're an Asian woman, it 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 sucks to say, but it's like compared to like an Asian boy counterpart, like the stereotypes white people have of Asian girls, like can like let's say if you're talking about the dating market, it works in favor of Asian girls as opposed to Asian boys, because like, I feel like I've had this conversation lately too, but like for Asian girls, like being coy and cute and docile and apolitical, like that's seen as like desirable to like white people and white men, especially. But if you're an Asian boy, there's negative stereotypes because like Asian boys tend to be looked down upon as like undesirable because they're seen as like more feminine and like not really masculine at all. And that traditionally has been like, oh, that's not kind of like the guy I want to date. That, that sort of mentality, especially from like, not just white people, but particularly white people. And it's just like, I think that that might be changing a little bit in terms of the Asian boy thing because of like K-pop or something, but yeah. Like speaking to K-pop, that's why I don't like a lot of um, sort of like the K-pop, you know, uh, sort of, what do you call them? Idol girl-esque aesthetics because it just, it ends up infantilizing. That is like making like someone seem more childish. Like when you see a lot of K-pop girl bands, like some of them are just like, hey, like really cute and like over the top to the point it's as if you're expecting them to like start vomiting rainbows and you're just, <laughs> it, it drives me nuts because it, that's the last image you want if you're an Asian woman trying to prove that you are just as like assertive, intelligent, brave, and as much of an equal to a man as possible. You do not want like images like that being associated with who you are just based on appearance and having like people say, why can't you, you know, wear a dress more often? Why can't you be that cute more often? Cause that's what they expect of you, but it's, it's a literal stereotype. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, I, I just want to touch on this very shortly, but the thing you said about like the Asian boys and like how they're um, stereotyped, um, that also goes into, I was reading this thing about how um, black women and Asian men are least desirable like dating in the dating market I don't know if you've ever heard that that 
that I um think I have but not yeah. in much detail if you want to yeah. elaborate on that um I think it was just a research done and I don't know if it was like on dating apps I'm assuming probably dating apps probably people's like real life experiences as well but um I know that um it was just pretty much like a study that was done and they found that um, black women and, and Asian men tend to be have like less dating experiences or less they're just less desirable to like other people and I think it was probably like white I don't remember who was at the top but I do know that they were those two races were at the bottom mm. races and gender it was the opposite so um for Asian men like like Mitch said Asian men are at the bottom of from like um I think I don't remember what was it. It was like um a data from OKCupid or something, and then it was yeah. showing the data from basically they were saying that um, Asian men are the lowest desirable like um in terms of dating prospects. Well, um, Asian women are actually the highest, one of the highest ranking, um t- with along with white women, as yeah. um more desirable, whereas black women are less desirable because they are seen as more masculine. Um, same as like Asian men where they're seen as more feminine whereas white men as well as black men are seen as more desirable because um, white men and black men are seen as more masculine yeah and then I think like black men are also very like hypersexualized as well so yeah it's a whole thing so are Asian women and like yeah. that koi egeo like cutesy aesthetic and it, it drives me absolutely nuts because like I I uh I don't know if you want to include this in your podcast either but I dated a guy who had that kind of um mindset for a while and I realized it all too late and I just felt like had I just woken up to the fact that he probably had yellow fever which is another derogatory way to say he's like fetishizes Asian women mm-hmm. and the fact that like he only ever saw me in a certain capacity, which was like, basically he wanted the cutesy girlfriend. He wanted the girlfriend that was just smart enough to be able to talk a little politics, but not too much to the point where it's like, oh, she's like feminist or like an SJW or like whatever like thing you want to call it. It's, it's so aggravating because what like not just white men, but like men expect of Asian women in particular, it's just like the pacified, subservient, dumb, naive, like girl that can't do anything without help. And it, it, it drives me absolutely nuts. Cause like, that's the last thing I'm trying to promote of myself. Like when you're trying to like strive to be treated as an equal and respected as an equal to any man that you should come across. That is the, the the whole docile cutesy look is the last thing you want to be associated with. And yet it is like the first thing that comes to mind usually when people take you just for appearance. Yeah, and that's the problem with like fetishization. Oh my God, I'm having trouble speaking today. But that's the problem with that. Like it happens to so, it happens to black women as well. And yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's so harmful and it's just crazy. Like you're living your life, you're trying to be you, and then you have this person who's oppressing you in this way. Exactly. Oppression is such the word. Yeah. Yeah. So messed up. But, All this depressing as well, like thought-provoking topic that we were talking about. What do you think we can do to maybe um, fight against these stereotypes and this like racism, institutional racism, 
like internalized using um, racism, what can we do? What What do you uh, think we can do about it? I think that this is, I'm, it's great that a lot of these topics are coming to light and you know, there's a lot of allyship and there's just a lot of things going on, but I think this is a long, long journey. And it a lot of it will start with um, white people acknowledging and not, and just being, uncomfortable being comfortable with being uncomfortable and just like breaking down all everything that they know the things they say just thinking about what they're saying and thinking about your intent but over no impact over intent I think that's something like that I don't know if I said in the right order but you know what I mean just like it starts with them really like they just need to be more open-minded and just a, a lot of some people are you know what I mean it's not everybody but it's just it's just a matter of like people just not just not having these like preconceived notions of people and it's, just, it's a lot of work and it's not work to be done by necessarily black people like it's not my job to go and educate someone on these issues mm -hmm. like don't come to me you know what I mean there's so many resources racism is everywhere I live it I experience it on the daily unfortunately it's not something that should be normalized and I don't want it to be normalized but unfortunately it is a part of our daily life and our society so it's just uh, yeah white people and yeah white people just need to really are the ones that need to actually dismantle racism and just come to terms with it and not deny people's not deny that it exists in our world or deny that people experience racism on the regular absolutely what everything to what Gloria said like Honestly, the idea that I've had so many white people, like whether indirectly or directly, like pressure me to have to explain things to them. Like, what am I doing that's being racist or sexist, Michelle? Like, I don't get it. It's literally not the job of the person you're offending or hurting with your words to have to explain to you why that's hurtful or harmful. Cause that's just even more emotional labor for people who are already vulnerable and marginalized and quite frankly, have better things to do with their time. Like it's exactly what Gloria said. It, that emotional labor and burden shouldn't be on the onus of people who are already oppressed. It should be on the onus of people who have the most privilege and probably stand to get the most advantage from learning uh, all that stuff. And that is really on white people, especially in the context of Canada, because mm -hmm ultimately it's this society needs to have to address you know like it's not just white centricism or, or eurocentricism even it's it's also like the sort of problem of white supremacy that's starting to come up recently like yeah the idea that it's you know a lot of people especially after the inauguration of donald trump from 2016 like there were a lot of white supremacist movements that ended up like popping up with not just the conservative values that we talked about before, but just the idea of like white people first and sort of just like being as disgusting as to like justify all these brutal police shootings that happened, especially with like black Americans and just black people and indigenous people in Canada, mm -hmm. which is still a like horrific issue that we still need to address. And especially speaking, as someone living in Canada now, I hate how the benchmark for Canadian politicians or anyone in power is just to look down south and be like, oh, we're not as bad as the United States right now. It's virtually on fire all the time. So we're, there's nothing to have to address. That's complete ludicrous BS. We have so much work to do, ex exactly to what Gloria said. And 
really, you know, it's not up to BIPOC people to have to constantly educate and explain things to white people. It's up to us to sort of maybe leave like some basic, you know, resources or even just, you know, voice our opinions as to why this is important to learn and express why we're being hurt. But beyond that, like white Canada has to choose whether to address its own racism or not. And just, you know, like white people in Western democracies all over the world, I would say, because it's similar problems everywhere. Yep, 100%. And without them um, addressing their, you know, their biases and they're just the racism and, you know, their privilege, yada, 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 we won't get anywhere. And racism will continue to be a thing. And it's racism is just so deep rooted in our history and just everything. So mm. it's, it's, it's a lot of work to um, do, but the fact that people are talking about it more and there's a lot of allyship, like I said before, and there's a lot of, you know, more, there's a lot of resources that are be, that are being like put out there and like put in people's faces and stuff. I mean, hopefully with time that uh, these things are, oh, and I think um, I, in schools now they're trying to have like a mandatory I don't remember is it like a university they're trying to have like a mandatory diversity and inclusion or something with racism like so I thought mm. I seen a petition for it during like the when lockdown was like in the beginning of lockdown like stuff like that like just little 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 things and like just implementing them in um in like for example like elementary schools like how to talk to children about racism I think that's so important because children are literally sponges and that's where that's where you can really 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 like when you're teaching children, like their brain, they're like, their brains are so like absorbent, you know what I mean? And I feel like a lot of it starts from when you're young. Yeah, exactly. So. Like the education system is probably one of the most, if not the most important thing that needs to be improved drastically. If we're going to even have like conversations about racism, like Gloria said, you need to be able to talk about it. So you need to have teachers and classes that are catering to that. And I think there are, like Gloria said, like diversity and equity training schemes that are coming into employment now. So like multicultural training and sort of like addressing all these issues. And I think these are really good steps because like, you know, these aren't things that are available everywhere around the world. I think Canada is making good strides in that way. I would just like caution to say like these programs in itself won't be enough. Like, and also it needs to engage people rather than just sort of like be a tokenist measure to say, oh, like checkbox did this, so I'm not racist anymore. You know, we can't get into that um, mentality of complacency. Like Gloria said, racism is a lifelong journey in a way. It's it's probably something that's not going to be solved within our generation alone. Like it's probably going to take multiple generations of like hard work, talking about it, and trying to build spaces where we can talk about it safely, like in this space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I also I think I heard something about was it is it Yelp where they said that now that if someone has a racist encounter or if restaurants are being racist or something that they would flag them and like you could see that. I don't remember. Oh. Yeah. And I was like, oh my goodness. So a lot of, a lot of talks about racism are going on in, in um, like t- in today's society. So, I mean, that's always like a bonus. And I just hope that it's not like a thing where it's like, oh, we're going to talk about racism. Oh yeah, we did something. And then it goes, it's like, no, like this is a fight that needs to be continuously talked about because there are people who are suffering mm-hmm. in all aspects of their lives. So yeah. Like, yeah, I, that Yelp thing that Gloria just brought up made me remember too. There was an incident, I think maybe a year or two ago at a Dundas street restaurant here in Toronto, where I think it was a Chinese restaurant that um, tried to be racist against, I think black 
patrons who um, were just eating in and dining in as like casually, but I think tried to like um, kick them out basically, just racially discriminating basically. And that made me realize too, it's not just white people as well, even though, you know, it is white Canadians that have the most power to like learn and do anything about racism. But it's also, I think, building allyships within minorities too. Because the thing is like, especially when we're talking about the hierarchy thing, minorities also discriminate against each other. And I think, you know, <laughs> they're definitely people who like look like me. They're definitely racist asshats. So there's a lot of work to be done all over between different communities as well. And we need to have more conversations and further education to even be able to bridge those divides. Because without like, I think, people of different backgrounds beginning to communicate with each other, we really won't be able to solve this problem. And I think a lot of like, especially for um, when we're talking about sort of the visibility of black people and their the sort of racism, it's sort of like, it's sort of a stupid presumption if you're not black or white that, oh, I'm a minority. So like, I can't be racist to other people that are not white. And that mentality also needs to go too. I just wanted to say that too. Yeah, I know. I think um, I was reading something probably on Instagram and it, I think it had to do with like the George Floyd, Floyd um, his, his killing and um, how like the Asian cop was standing there and people were just saying things like, I don't want to be associated with person of color. I'm black or I'm an indigenous person because sometimes it's not like we think this is a fight with all of like visible, visible minorities against like white, you know what I mean? Like the white just white people or whatever, but it's it's not. Sometimes it is like Mitch said, it is within other minorities that are going against other minorities. And it's it's really sad because it's like, you would think that, you know, like we should work together and blah, blah, blah. But it's a whole thing. There's a lot of racism even within that. Thing yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I remember having another conversation, I think with Mitch and she said that this pitting of, um, minorities and minorities against each other has been like a staple of white supremacy and where the um, white people are on top and the minorities under there um, they're fighting kind of for these scraps on who gets to be second or third or you know like who doesn't have to be at the bottom of the barrel and I think that's something we need to um, address on like that minorities should be like, we should be there for each other instead of like trying to fight against like, oh, like second place or like second last place or something like that. Because in the end is just not gonna do us any good if we're just fighting against each other while we're like, people are on top, the, the people with white supremacy, you know, on top are having all the benefits of like, you know, pitting each other, like pitting us against each other. Yeah, because I think I remember the conversation now. Was it to do with the affirmative action stuff that we were talking about in terms of the the controversy with Ivy schools and their enrollment system that, you know, discriminated against Asian Americans? Um, yeah, that's one thing because um, I feel like uh, the backlash with Asian Americans is they're very focused on how affirmative action is trying to like, I'm just going to use kind of air quotes here, to like bring down like Asian Americans and then like have black and H Hispanic people like, you know, who air quote doesn't deserve to like, you know, get into like these um, 
top universities. And I feel like um, the way they're going at it is not like, it's not, it's not right because like they're missing the point on like, okay, we have this, like um, what, what they think is racist because like, or like kind of like trying to like pit like one minority against each other. And then like at the end, what I was saying at the back, you have these legacy admissions. That's what I was thinking like last time where I forgot like, what was it? It was like, it was legacy admissions where it was predominantly white people who get in. Like they never talk about it. Every time you talk about um, something about like schools and like admissions as well as like those things, it's always, oh, like why are like Hispanics and why are black people like getting those spots when they don't deserve it? Um, and then like Asians are getting kicked off, but they never talk about, um, you know, why are legacy missions there? Like right. why are white people getting a pass because yeah so i can i can speak to that pretty briefly because just for anyone that doesn't know legacy emissions is basically um you know harvard or any other university or institution will give preference in terms of admissions to people who have family or alumni or like associate members of that institution like donors or something so you know that's used to justify a lot of like white admissions into these institutions because predominantly even before they had any racial quotas it was predominantly large by and large white people that were getting into these institutions because most minorities couldn't even you know get the qualifications to access ivy league schools or colleges or universities alone you know anywhere and then there was a whole controversy about like do we have a racial quota or not it went to the through the u.s court system i think what they decided in the end was they were not going to have quotas because that quote unquote discriminated against you know certain applicants which was read by a, a white judge and you know ended up resulting in i think in a i think a particular year for a medical um, admissions period it ended up leading into more white admissions and knocking out some quotas for black um, admit, like par applicants who could have gotten into medical school that year. So at the end of the day, it's like what Yunlan is saying. It's, it's all sort of like, we still have policies that pit minorities against minorities rather than actually meritocratically weighing in the fact that, you know, a lot of different minorities of all sorts of backgrounds deserve to get spots in very much prestigious institutions that have the capacity to like forward people's you know career paths and channel them to like really important positions of power in the country especially if you're in an ivy league school um yeah and those channels of privilege are still denied by and large to minorities overall but instead of like i think uh sort of addressing you know whether it's legacy admissions or sort of like any structure that just favors white applicants in a pool uh there's still this whole rhetoric of you know oh, you know, minorities against minorities, which really needs to be addressed. At the end of the day, it's racism is still basically a hierarchy and it needs to be torn down by all people within that hierarchy by acknowledging that the hierarchy is there in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so like like Mitch said, a lot of times um, these progressive um, laws or these progressive um, past things that like try to make it progressive. yeah seemingly progressive but like when you look a little bit deeper it it does um it's, it's not progressive at all or like it just tries to look progressive 
on top, but like underneath it's tr another way to like almost, I, I would say like um, to have the status quo. So like to, um, in this case, like white supremacy to, to make sure that like white people um, still get what they have, but like at the same time, there's like, we're throwing a bone at you, but like this bone has like barely any scraps and like you guys could like at the bottom fight for that basically and it's something yeah. that like um i'm gonna say like you know at the end of the day like if we really want a multicultural and like equitable society like we really do have to remove the idea that any one race or ethnicity or group of persons should be at the top there shouldn't you know in an ideal world be that sort of top you know where a small number of people hold the most power privilege and potential to abuse that power against everyone else in that population. At the end of the day, that kind of structure needs to just ultimately, I think, go. It needs to be replaced with something much more versatile and much more um, emphasizing on like uh, cooperation and mutual benefit rather than, you know, people just screwing each other over based on power and privilege. All right, so we're nearing the end of our podcast. Um, I would like to thank Mitch as well as Gloria F on like this very insightful conversation. So is there anything else you would like to talk about a little before we end this podcast? Um, no, not too much. I'm just, thank you for having us. Thank you for allowing us to um, share our input, our experiences, for giving us a voice and a platform to like speak on these important issues surrounding like BIPOC people and, you know, just life experiences and I just hope that the future is different. And I'm so, so happy that a lot of people are talking about racism and they're getting more comfortable talking about racism and just sympathizing and empathizing with other people. And yeah, that's it, really. Yeah, I like the air quotes there, Gloria. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah exactly. Um, to everything Gloria said, like, thanks for having us and thanks for having you know, created this space where we can talk about these issues openly and in a safe environment. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Mitch and Gloria F again. Um, and thank you for listening. Um, stay, well, this will, this is the second podcast of two podcasts on racism. So if you haven't listened to the first one yet, please do with Hanya and Ajay, as well as um, a shameless plug on like Mitch's um, immigration podcast please listen to that too um those are pretty very good very good um so and thank you for listening again and goodbye this concludes our podcast on the topic of racism we hope you gained some useful insights during this podcast thank you for listening <laughs>